QUT acknowledges the Turrbal and Yugara as the First Nations owners of the lands where QUT now stands. We pay respects to their elders, laws, customs and creation spirits. We recognise that these lands have always been places of teaching, research and learning. QUT acknowledges the important role Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people play within the QUT community. And here at How To Academia, we also acknowledge that these lands have never been ceded. Welcome to How To Academia. Leaving high school and joining the world of uni can be a weird and difficult time. On this podcast, we talk to our friends, students and academics to find out how they went about the process of developing professional skills, dealing with challenges and generally navigating the gooey mess of being a human in the academic world. Our guest this episode is Adele Webb. Adele is a political sociologist and lecturer in politics and policy at QUT's School of Justice. She is also an affiliated investigator in our Centre for Justice. Her research focuses on Southeast Asian politics, Philippine political history, post-colonial studies, and democratic theory. In this episode, Adele discusses her work, including her time spent studying in South Africa and her role with Jubilee Australia. She and Jodie also discuss some big questions around global justice and inequality, as well as how to take care of yourself, both as a student and as a professional working in these spaces. Without any further ado, Adele Webb. Welcome to How To Academia. Who the hell are you? Hi, thanks for having me, Jodie. I'm Adele Webb and I'm a lecturer here in the School of Justice. I'm a newbie. I've only been here since February this year at QUT and I'm a bit of a newbie to Brisbane because I've only lived in Brisbane for about 18 months. So before that I was living in Germany and before that I was living in Sydney and around the place. I got my, I started my PhD in about 2013 and finished that at the end of 2018. Four weeks later I had two babies so I'm also a mother of oh. twins and yeah have been sort of teaching here and there while they've been very little and have now started kind of full-time here in the school, which is really, I'm going to use an excellent word, serendipitous, I think. Yes, isn't that a lovely word? It's so nice. Yeah, so serendipitous because I think justice is something that's always kind of been a guiding thing in my life and I'm one of those people that's had a very non-linear career path. Is that the way we say it, to feel more empowered about ourselves when it's not very straightforward and not very clear? Yeah, it's been non-linear. I've done a few different things, but justice has kind of really been at the centre of all of it. So it feels like, you know, a good place to be. Awesome. Tell me about your non-linear career. Well, I guess it's like a story in two halves or... Yeah, so I, I I did a law degree when I finished high school, but I wasn't really interested in being a lawyer. I didn't like the people in law school, to be honest. They weren't really my cup of tea, and I was, yeah, gravitated towards people in my arts degree. Anyway, I finished that, but I was always kind of interested in, I guess, justice and advocacy. I eventually, a few years later, a few hiccups later in the personal life, I ended up kind of going back to study and for various reasons, including kind of constraints within my own personal life, I studied development studies through the University of South Africa, 
which is for short UNISA, which is actually at the time was completely unique. Now, of course, distance education is so normal, but at the time doing remote study was completely kind of quite strange. So that's how Nelson Mandela got his degrees when he was in prison in South Africa and so on and other people, other famous activists. Yeah, so because I wanted to get back into studying kind of international development stuff, but I didn't want to study international development in Australia. I had this really strong feeling about studying international development and issues of poverty and justice from white professors. I just Mm. found that kind of... I mean, I've since taught development studies myself here, so, you know, can call me a hypocrite perhaps. But my thinking process was that I really wanted to kind of understand it authentically. Yeah, so I did that and I ended up starting working, starting to work in an NGO in Sydney where I was living at the time called Jubilee Australia. And about 18 months after I started there, or two years maybe, I took over as the director of that NGO and stayed in that position for another five years or so until I was quite burnt out and decided to take a break. I did my master's and then I ended up deciding I needed to extend that break. So I did my PhD, which people thought was hilarious to do, to do a PhD as a break. But for me, it felt like a break from mm-hmm. activism. And it felt very indulgent to kind of spend time thinking about things when I was an activist or working in the NGO you just never got time to dwell on things you just had to move so fast so I kind of loved that idea and to kind of hone my skills and invest a bit in my own skills which in an NGO you you have to be very skilled and skill up very quickly but you don't really have time to nobody sends you to courses and workshops Mm. nobody has money for that so yeah so I did that and then the rest I guess is a bit of history I enjoyed it I found a justice angle kind of in my PhD and yeah and here I am. We're going to talk more about your PhD but I'm interested in what Jubilee Australia is about. So Jubilee Australia it's now called the Jubilee Australia Research Centre formally but when I joined it it was just Jubilee Australia it is the product of the Jubilee movement which you might remember those old enough would remember it was kind of started in the 1990s and it was endorsed even by the Pope by the end of the decade and it was a movement to cancel what at the time was referred to as third world debt at the turn of the millennium to kind of give countries that were at that point in the midst of an extreme debt crisis a fresh start. So the principle of the Jubilee is actually from the Old Testament of the Bible. It's about kind of not letting people's debts enslave them for generations, that you should at some point have a Jubilee where you kind of free people from their debts so that it doesn't enslave them and their families for generations. So this is the kind of thinking behind Jubilee. And, it's, and so we were part of this global movement to push for countries, including Australia, to cancel the debts of developing countries that were still paying exorbitant debts before they were paying like healthcare and education mm. for their citizens. And while I was there, we kind of moved into more just kind of issues that were part of the global justice movement. So we worked on international taxation and multinational taxation or the lack of taxation of multinational corporations. We campaigned for the international uh, for a financial transaction tax, the Robin Hood tax campaign. So we, we ran that campaign in Australia, which was a global campaign. 
And we started advocating a lot more about how Australian government money was being used quietly because nobody really knows about the export credit agency that was basically backing resource companies to do massive mining projects in places like the Philippines and Papua New Guinea and that basically taxpayer money was being used to, to guarantee loans from other banks and so that ExxonMobil, for example, could do the biggest resource project in the history of the Pacific in PNG, which, of course, we lobbied hard against, that taxpayer money shouldn't be used in such a project, that there wasn't evidence that this was going to really benefit the people of Papua New Guinea, that this was really just about the corporations extracting the minerals and then running away with the profits and leaving the PNG government with the debts and that it would worsen what was already a problematic political context and a cultural context of weapons and violence, all of which proved to unfold and proved to be true. Unfortunately, with this project, it did see ExxonMobil and others run away with a lot of profits from the PNG government basically left with the debt of, of it and culturally had a huge impact so yeah so that's the sort of advocacy we were involved in it was very yeah it was exciting it was really it's really important stuff it's sort of stuff that is not it's difficult to explain to the ordinary person because it takes a little bit of time like you can't it's not like you know just the campaign to increase aid to you know 0.7 percent and most people can kind of understand what you mean by that but when you're trying to tell people that you want to reform the export credit agency that indirectly gives taxpayer money to support corporations overseas it's a little bit more complicated so the advocacy was always you know it's quite tricky and in terms of the Australian scene or the sort of Australian development sector we were a little bit on the fringe because we weren't we were very critical of how foreign aid was delivered, what it was used for, how it potentially disempowered groups instead of empowering them, how most of it in the end went through, went to technocrats who were employed mm. from the donor countries who didn't necessarily have the best interests of the local communities at heart. It didn't necessarily kind of embolden local populations. And that message wasn't always that popular amongst the development community because they just wanted to focus on more, getting more money out of the government. And being too critical was seen as counterproductive. So it was a really, was a really challenging context, but really exciting. And, and our colleagues were mostly basically overseas, you know, so we were working with peers who were doing the same sort of advocacy in the UK and in the US and in the Philippines and in South America, in Zimbabwe and South Africa and so on. So they were really the colleagues. So it was really a global movement. It was it was such a privilege and so exciting to be part of. What's behind your interest in this kind of big questions of global justice? Where's that come from? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't have I can't tell you that my family had discussions about global justice at the dinner table, not at all. I didn't grow up exposed to injustice. I wasn't one of those people that had kind of injustice in my face. I grew, up, I grew up in a very privileged setting. I think it's something I can't I can't explain. I've asked that question a lot. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something innate. I don't know. I sort of always had a sense of justice. And when I left high school, I went to, you know, a very 
privileged, if you call it that, private school in Sydney. And most people were going straight to Sydney University to study. And I wanted to run as far away from them as I, and them and Sydney Uni and the environment as I could. I just, it wasn't home for me. It felt really wrong. My position felt wrong. I didn't like, I was starting life ahead because you do in that situation, don't you? You just, you know, of no, of nothing that you ever did but you get such a head start and I just thought I couldn't keep going with that. Mm. I needed to stop and kind of think about it. So I ended up going, I got chosen as a Rotary Exchange student and went to South Africa for a year. And then as a young 17, 18 year old, I was exposed to real issues of justice. And I realized that politics, which was something that was kind of discussed really in a really banal way in our family was life and death. Mm-hmm. And justice kind of, or injustice had face, had a face. It had lots of faces, actually. They were black in South Africa. And I, f- I was there, actually, this is going to betray my age, but I was there, actually, in the early years of the Mandela government. Mm. It was an extraordinary time to be in South Africa and to see the end of apartheid and, you know, the dignity restored to people and their political rights and to be exposed to people who were really wrestling with how to make right something that had been so wrong for so many years. So yeah, I think that just kind of emboldened me and that never left me. And that's partly why I got a bit waylaid. I came back and did a law degree and got a bit distracted. But when I went back to study at University of South Africa, it was really wanting to kind of revisit those feelings and that energy and that kind of deep passion and groundedness that I felt in those issues and so that was for me the best way I thought I could do that. I couldn't go back to South Africa even though I wanted to. I couldn't so studying was kind of the way to to root me again in that and to to bring that back to life. Yeah. I have so many questions. Uh, The first one I'm going to ask is were your parents deeply relieved when you came back and decided to study law? Yes they yeah and I still feel really ambivalent about that because they were deeply relieved they were they really pushed for me to study law it wasn't wouldn't have been my choice i was one of those people i did i did really well in high school and i think i did really well because i worked really hard that's the at the end of the day i studied really hard i got a really good mark but i wanted to do like environmental <laughs> studies and in charleston university in bathurst or something <laughs> and i got this mark and my parents just looked at me and said you can't do that like because I think that at that point you know you got a t- tertiary ent- entrance mark or whatever and it, they they required like fifty five, yeah, and I'd gotten you know this, this certain mark and they just said you can't waste you know you'd be like wasting all that mark to go and study, yeah and so I I guess I just didn't have enough self confidence to say no actually I know what I want to do and that's what I want to do. Having said that, I think it turned out. Okay, I think I managed to use the law degree to my advantage. So as being an advocate for kind of global justice issues, the kind of the the logical thinking that I learned, the argumentation, Mm. the attention to detail, I think as much as I disliked law school and disliked my peers at law school, to be honest, excuse, apologies to anyone listening who's a law student, but I think it was a good grounding and it gave me confidence. I mean, Sydney Law... I was at UNSW. 
Yeah. So University of New South Wales, which at the time was considered the the best law school, mm. which is even worse, really. It's such an elite program. <laughs> it's so. Like, it's <laughs> such an elite, and it, it has that like it's it's hard to get into unless you're that mould of person that's had those advantages from the get go. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's Which right. Shapes shapes what it all looks like and how it feels. I imagine being a uh, white private school girl landing in South Africa at that particular moment in history was a massive cultural shock. Yeah, it was enormous, and life wasn't made like easy for me, which I'm very thankful about now. The Rotarians on the other side, my fam- my host families were quite thoughtful people and I went to two schools while I was there but the first school that I went to so they could have sent me to the local private school up the road which would have been very similar to the one that I'd mm. been to but they didn't they so they sent me to Alexandra High which was a school that had only recently gone co-ed it had previously been an all white boys school okay. so it had only recently gone co-ed so there were like five girls in my in the in the kind of year 12 what's called matric over there and there were by that time sort of more than 50% of the school students were coming from the accessible townships and what you had was this kind of melding point a pot of educational experiences and backgrounds so you had the students who would have always been able to access that school because they're white and lived in the town and then you had these new students who as of two years prior were allowed to come and enrol and if there was a seat in a class the school had to say yes so you know just enormous kind of challenges on their educational system and it was really really hard there was just it was like the school was a concrete jungle it was just you know aesthetically it was heavy and there was so much stuff going on and I was completely out of my comfort zone but it was fantastic in a way because, yeah, I ended up kind of meeting some really fantastic people, including a couple of teachers who taught me so much. And just being there and being part of that just felt like being on the right side of history. Did it feel fantastic at the time? No, I cried myself to sleep for three months. Yeah. Yeah, I was desperately homesick and the culture shock was really too much like it was I'm grateful for it now and I had to really grow through it but and uh, and I spent the kind of nine months after that absolutely loving my time in South Africa yeah absolutely loving it and not wanting to leave but the first three months I literally cried myself to sleep every night what do you think the shift was (coughs) I think once three months was up I thought well I don't have 12 months anymore like it's not a year that I have to live through this and it was at a time when there was no there was no email there was no Facebook there was no I did not communicate with anyone at home occasionally my parents would send a fax to my host father who would bring it home print it out and bring it home that was like that was it and occasionally we'd organize a landline phone call but maybe once every three months Mm -hmm. I probably spoke to them four times in the whole year so it was just a completely different time and I'm really grateful for that because I could really I had to really let go of everything back at home and I think you know once I'd kind of decided to let that go and just live there and once I had kind of developed some relationships which gave me some confidence 
I think I just I just thrived and by the end of it you couldn't tell by my accent that I wasn't South African so I developed a a white British South African accent that my parents couldn't understand when I came (laughs) home and I think that's interesting I think I I think of it as part of the immersion process I've always been like thought that immersion is really important and I I think once I decided to let go of my little Australian life and just be that person there including my language just changed my accent changed and I just totally got immersed and it was really transformative. When you remember that time what are the pictures that stick in your head? That's a good question. I have a memory of being on the lawns of the parliament in Pretoria on the anniversary of the election of Nelson Mandela and we were touring there was a a couple of times in the year we did a little tour with other exchange students from around the country so they were coming from all other parts of the world and this was one of those and we had this tour guide who was who did all sorts of things that he wasn't meant to do but he did them (laughs) worse anyway he was he was a coloured man and he knew a lot of people and things that gave us access that we wouldn't otherwise have had so yeah he knew this celebration was happening there were no other white people there at all it was just the lawns were just full of people dancing and singing and you know doing kind of like you know voice I can't do it where you yeah and just it was just it just felt like oh my gosh this is dignity Mm. and it felt like watching people having their dignity restored and of course you know there's so many problems in that country and there were so many problems and there still are so many problems I don't want to diminish that but those moments were just like this is incredible you can shift to something and people's lives and their whole meaning of who they are can change and so we were just observers there just watching their celebrations so that memory really sticks very powerfully yeah and I also developed a relationship with a school in a in a sort of rural township area between Pietermaritzburg and Durban where I was Pietermaritzburg where I was living and Durban's on the coast and yeah I, I I sort of was able to visit them regularly and these kids that just came from the local townships into this school which had basically nothing and yeah it just they were just scenes that I had never encountered of course and yeah all sorts of things go through your head about that I don't know if I did all the things that I would do now if I in that context as the white person who was visiting as a special mm-hmm. guest but I did what I thought was best at the time and I just yeah it was just such a privilege and honor to see those things but then of course I get to go home yeah yes which is tricky it is tricky so I guess fast forwarding to working in an NGO with this quite big political mandate what did you learn working in an NGO? Oh, I learned so much. I learned on the job. You don't really, I mean, I've just finished teaching political practice course and I hope that those students in that course have learned some skills in campaigning and strategising and kind of, you know, thinking about political advocacy from a non-government point of view. But I hadn't studied that and I... Yeah, so you just, you learn everything on the go. And I think that's pretty common 
in NGO work because people don't have discrete roles. You don't really, I mean, maybe if you're working for World Vision or something that's quite enormous, you can have a discrete role, like I just do this little piece of the puzzle. But if you're working on in, common, commonly in, in NGOs that are really small and resource-stretched, really under pressure in terms of resources, you just have to do, you have to fill whatever hole is there. So I had to learn very quickly, you know, about campaign strategizing, about effective communication to get supporters. I started off in a kind of communications and fundraising role. So I had to kind of really try and save the organisation because it was financially dying. Mm -hmm. We also had to kind of reinvent the organisation's profile and its sort of its legitimacy because people were asking, well, 2000's over, what's the why are you do why do you still exist and what's your value add in the sector and so on so part of you know what i did during that time was really reinvent its value add and kind of try to kind of re-articulate the mission make connections with people overseas none of this stuff you know i learned at university it was very helpful that i'd done quite a lot of kind of boring admin jobs when I was in my 20s when I was kind of for personal reasons and so I ended up kind of learning how to do silly things like you know use publisher to do newsletters do do organizational things that again nobody teaches you at university so when I went into the job I was I was pretty well equipped I didn't need anybody to do all that stuff for me because there was nobody nobody to print your to design your flyer you just had to do it yourself you know so stuff so you have to be a jack of all trades, but you also have to sort of have a vision. And yeah, it was, yeah, you learn, I learned on the spot. Yeah, but I wasn't confident when I began. And it took quite a few years for me to really grow into that role and grow into mm. confidence and to realise that I, I had become quite good at it. But at the beginning, I wasn't good at it because I just, you know, if you had have sent me to talk to an MP about an issue, I would have just... Um, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> but in the end, you know, I would speak to roundtables of politicians so confidently, perhaps, you know, but yeah, that, that, that they would come up to me afterwards and say thank you for the robust, robust discussion, even though they vehemently disagreed with what I was saying, but they would sort of appreciate the, the robustness of it. And I think part of it was just thinking, well, you're just an elected MP. You're not like, I've got every right to say these things to you politely you know, and within kind of broadly the norms of how advocacy works, but I don't know. I don't owe any kind of extra deference to you. I'm going to bring my point in here very strongly and put it to you very strongly and make you feel awkward. And if I've done that, then I'm gonna, I'm going to have done my job. So that's that. what happened many many times, actually. Yeah. The problem was it used to sometimes make the other NGO people awkward. You know, the people who were just wanting more foreign aid, they would often be like. Oh, don't can you not be so combative you know it sort of looks bad for us and I just think well, what's the point of being here what is the point of being there just to get the just to get the government funding yeah so that's where the justice thing really came in because you don't have to really be concerned about justice to want to be involved in delivering foreign aid or international development it, justice has a really particular and peculiar kind of relationship with development an uncomfortable one actually and so you encounter that a lot you know where we felt like everything we were doing was about justice but often we felt like we were hitting our heads against a brick wall with that can you tell me more about that is that just the 
it's not just what you do, it's how you do it that counts or is there more to what you're saying than that? I think at the end of the day, in terms of development, it's partly why I couldn't study development through Australian University. Like, I just think that it's very important to decolonise it. And at the end of the day, you know, countries are needing assistance for development. They're needing, you know, advocacy for debt justice and so on, because we have benefited from an imperial world system that puts some countries at the centre and controlling the kind of the economy, the world economy and the global institutions and so on, and most of the countries around the periphery of us. So nothing is accidental or inevitable. It's very much constructed, and I've always had that kind of constructivist, I guess, view of the third world or the developing world or the global south, as we call it now. So it's not hard to see that what we owe is not like benevolence or charity it's restoration of mm. rights and dignity and like and it's returning and it's reparations <laughs> it's like so all of this stuff it's quite contentious in the development literature you know about where how you fit all these kind of calls for reparation and justice into development work because at the end of the day it's also important just to kind of be doing development work well but I think without this kind of this sort of understanding of justice and that you you are only there because of what you've benefited from that has that is part of the reason why these people have no clean water mm. and have no you know have no toilets so it's yeah I saw in that work the kind of power relations between countries between organizations between local communities and you know development workers and so on and the power is so imbalanced mm. and the assumptions have long been that people need help because they just can't figure it out for themselves which is a kind of a, not that this is my segue not yours so apologies <laughs> But it's interesting because this was the kind of segue that I took with my PhD research because when I started reading the democracy literature on the Philippines, which, long story, I became really interested in the Philippines, partly through having colleagues there that were just fantastic and I was just like, I just want to come and spend time with you, so I did. And then I began researching Philippine politics. But when I read the democracy literature, the kind of mainstream orthodox democracy literature, journal of democracy, et cetera, et cetera, and the comparative literature it just continually positioned the Philippines and Filipinos as kind of incapable of doing democracy, as somehow kind of having, lacking in something, really negative, really derogatory, to the point where I read one piece in my first year, which just, I'm so grateful that I read it because it made me so angry. It That's why I kind of wrote my PhD the way I did. It said that, you know, Filipinos weren't cognitively sophisticated in the ways of democracy. And I just thought, how can you possibly write that stuff? Who are you? And what the heck are you saying? Like, how could you ethically say that? And I'd been on the ground with Filipinos. I knew how cognitively sophisticated they were. They were like the leaders of our global movement. These people knew exactly what was going on. So I just felt so repulsed by this tone in the literature. So I guess I kind of took my justice struggle into the academic literature in a way and tried to defend or explain 
the kind of historical baggage of imperialism that had caused Filipinos to think and do what they do. I would be so horrendously embarrassed if that had been my statement that just holus bolus this other population are not... Oh, you should read the comparative political science literature. It's full of statements like that. That is not a one-off. Oh, my God. It's, it's not a one-off at all. It's very much the tone, you know, because they have their stats and they look at the... And that's how they explain this, their stats, you know, in the World Value Survey or whatever. Filipinos don't value democracy, therefore they just don't understand it properly. And yeah, you, you don't get me started. How do you process that? Well, I was very angry. I think, and very determined and, yeah, very motivated. So I had a a great supervisor who basically just didn't put constraints on me, which for many people would be a really bad thing. (laughs) For me, it was a really great thing. He was also really fantastic at recognising that I probably lacked... Probably my competency was beyond my confidence. So he was very... He gave me a lot of confidence, whereas I think for other students he probably would have tried to rein in their confidence. You know, you start a PhD and you think, I'm going to rewrite the literature on X, whereas I was like, how could I possibly say anything new that everything has been so much written, I've got to read everything and I've got to like respond to everything that's ever been written and I can't say anything new. And I think, you know, he saw that and he emboldened me to kind of, yeah, it's going to be really tricky, but you could could write a, a new history of democracy in the Philippines. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what are you saying? And then I just thought, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll give it a go. What was it about him that gave you such confidence? What did he, how did he give you confidence? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd love to. I know. <laughs> well, he's a, it's Professor John Keane, who's a very internationally renowned democracy scholar, political theorist, historian, sort of written a thousand page books on the life and death of democracy and so on. So he's incredibly accomplished and it was his sort of wondrous writing about democracy and his kind of insistence that at the end he wrote this book that was literally a thousand pages called The Life and Death of Democracy and at the end of it he basically says democracy is about humbling power. And I just thought, yes, thank you, nothing else you know, that just should go on the top of the pile. I'm sorry, but institutions, yes, 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 yes. Humbling power, it has to be on the top. And that reflects not just kind of institutions, it reflects the way we relate personally with each other. You know, it's it's about relationship, really. And so I was really drawn to his work. And, and to be really frank, when I was, I was in London doing my master's and I thought, oh, maybe I'll try and do my PhD. He was the only person I wrote to because I thought, I... I don't really feel like doing my PhD with anyone else. His his scope of thinking was so attractive to me. And, you know, luckily for me, he replied to my email and I came to Sydney and studied with him and he has been, he's so important in my story. He's, a, he's been a wonderful person intellectually as a mentor. So I, I, I think he just really pushed my curiosity and he sort of saw that I was I was digging around in places and I think other people would have been wary of that and tried to rein it in and try to constrain it and put structures around it and put parameters put methodological parameters put that he didn't do any of that I think it could have gone badly but it didn't and he so he just kind of kept inflaming my curiosity every time I'd go and speak to him he'd be He'd ask about this little thing that I'd kind of been thinking about and he'd really probe it and 
and let me have given me permission to open it up more and keep thinking and keep thinking. So he, yeah, he was just a wonderful person to work with. Absolutely love that. There's a lot in your life that is very big concept, big emotion, big engagement. How do you be an activist that has those massive agendas and not carry it into your personal life? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's probably one of the reasons why I'm no longer an activist because it's very difficult. And I think one of the things I struggled with in that period of my life when I was doing activism was balance. Like I just, it was really hard not to live and breathe. It was really hard that if you chose not to work on something, if you didn't do your best, the consequences of it were just so real and you... I mean, I never thought of that period as if I had a job. I mean, I didn't. I wouldn't have been able to tell you where my employment contract was, or even really how much I was getting paid. It wasn't very much, but it was enough to pay my rent. And it was never about that. And I had colleagues overseas who, you know, weren't in the position that I was in, you know, with a regular salary and so on. So I knew that. Yeah. So it was just it was living and breathing the issues, and it was it was kind of both wonderful and both really debilitating because I think and you hear this story often you know that the activists these great activists that you might see on some some, in pu- some public setting making this great statement often behind them is a personal life in complete disarray mm. and that was a bit me it was good for the time I think but I think when as I was getting a bit older and stuff I just I I really needed a bit more balance. I needed to find a way to be able to express these things without sending my personal life completely into, you know, into chaos. So even, you know, things like having a healthy relationship was just really tricky, really tricky. And I failed at it really spectacularly. So, yeah, going into study and doing my PhD was really part of this kind of move to try and work out how to keep thinking about these things being involved with them but without having to kind of put my body on the line and I don't know I still feel really ambivalent about that and Mm -hmm. that's I think why I call myself an accidental academic because I've always felt very cautious about working in academia because it means I'm not the opportunity cost is I'm not working in advocacy so every day I spend here I'm not working for an NGO kind of pushing forward that stuff like I was doing before I'm not meeting with MPs and exposing to them what their policy is doing to people in Papua New Guinea and that weighs heavily I've I've you know as the years have gone by I've just kind of I've settled into it more and now I have you know a healthy relationship and children so I, I I did after my PhD think about going back into NGO work and I dabbled in it a bit and I even just the dabbling I thought oh this is tricky mm. to balance this the way that I want to with my family and with just living a healthy life. So I don't, I'm not the person to ask about how to find that balance as an activist. I didn't succeed really at that, but I have no regrets about that period whatsoever, mm. yeah. I mean, activism is a particular context and it's a particularly important context, but I think the same is, same is true for any of the professions that challenge the really big justice issues around, like I think the same is in child protection. Yeah. It takes yeah. over yeah. your life. How can you not think about that, you know, when you go home? When you go yeah. home. Same as in, you know, in policing yeah. even and the things that you see on the daily and the way that that trauma yeah. carries through. And it is, I think, 
chronic to what we do as justice professionals. Yeah. yeah. Did you come up with any kind of skills in that on how to um, balance that? Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure I did, to be honest, in terms of working in child protection. But yeah, like maybe you did. I if don't you did, know. Can you share I, them? I don't think I'm the best person to ask. I think I dealt with it by leaving, which is not not very good. I think it happens probably a lot often. But I think, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. Beyond kind of things like, you know, just really drawing boundaries around time with time and but yeah no I don't know I, w- I can somebody else tell tell us <laughs> I'd love like phone in if you have any ideas I mean for me one of the most profound shifts I had was when I realized I thought I could save the world yeah that yeah and I thought I was going to save the world not from a I'm the savior of the universe ever kind of perspective but I thought I just I thought for some reason that I could make it okay. Yeah. And I realized at some point I can't make it okay. And as in trying to make it okay, I'm really just damaging myself yeah. and probably the people around me. Yeah. Because I'm trying to do something that is impossible and also not an approach that actually gets to that kind of grassroots we want to enact change that is collaborative and speaks truth to power and brings people together in just ways I guess no that's very powerful I I I totally resonate with that and I think you're right that you yeah so for me I think it was in stepping back that you could see I kept seeing my my the colleague in one colleague in particular that I'd worked a lot with and still kind of struggling and kind of giving everything of his life and all and I I just remember seeing it from the outside and thinking oh I don't know if that's I don't know if that's good for anyone actually including the cause mm. yeah so I think it's in stepping back and you kind of you you you're often not the best version of yourself under that strain and in those circumstances and the most kind of profound or incisive work can happen when you're thinking more clearly, when you've got some more balance, when you've had time to reflect. So maybe it's also a quantity versus quality thing. You know, you kind of think that you need to spend 22 hours a day kind of, and then you take a step back and have a good night's sleep and you do something really fantastic the next day in one hour. Mm. Yeah, for me, definitely stepping back. And in the end, I, you know, my PhD is a book and it's about to get published in the Philippines as if in a Philippine edition as well as a UK edition and I'm still really find it hard to believe that it's informing debate there and it's yes. import it's it's helping people I'm going to say this hesitantly it's helping people to understand the injustice in their journey and then to empower them I mean people in the Philippines and to not you know not not believe this narrative that it's that they did something wrong or they're doing something wrong so in a sense I think that's you know probably my greatest contribution Mm. and it was it was sort of birthed by taking a step back so I find it really hard as an academic who cares and wants to see change and I notice I guess the biggest difference for me is that when you work in child protection and you provide an intervention in a family that either makes life better for them 
and does something productive towards better parenting or you remove a child from that situation so they're no longer being harmed in that situation or they're potentially being harmed in other mm. but let's not talk about systemic issues yeah but you do something that is tangible and measurable whereas you're sitting as an academic yeah and you're writing work and you never really know like yeah what impact it is and that for me is the biggest challenge from yeah. being one type of professional to another yeah. type of professional yeah I wonder what your insight is in how we as academics can be better at getting some of that activist work done. Yeah. Any ideas? <laughs> oh, I can only speak for myself doing academic work and I've never been able to do the kind of academic work that just writes about something or something without kind of rightly or wrongly like sensing some authenticity in my position in it Mm -hmm. like that I'm um, I think a lot of academic work gets written and that's the problem of this the system is that it pushes you to produce work that you might not even believe very much in or even think is very good but if as long as it gets published it doesn't matter and it's out there and you don't really know or care too much about what happens to it next and so on I mean I this is particularly the case in I know in political science work I don't know so much in criminology or in but yeah so I I've for better or worse I've I've never been able to to do that that's why my PhD took so long Mm. and why I I labor over things so long which is not very good in a competitive academic setting it's just not you can't. You don't have the publications to show on your record. You have maybe impact. That's what I'm going on. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that impact counts. Impact totally counts. I think one of the problems is that with academia and the developed world is that we. It is rare to have academics that are really driving thinking, rather than just driving knowledge production. Yeah. For me, there's a significant difference we need to know things in order to be able to think about them but we want to be able to make change and making change requires a deeper engagement that academia really is not now geared towards yeah that's it that's the thing is it doesn't incentivize that sort of I think the funding the time allocation all that stuff doesn't incentivize in fact dissuades you from doing the kind of really deep thinking about something. How do I do? I need to change the way I'm, you know, this theoretical framework that I keep applying to the beginning of my article so that I can then dump my data in and publish something. Do I need to rethink that framework? What if, yeah, and it's it's like that's a precipice <laughs> because once you start to unpack that stuff, you don't know when you're going to find the bottom and you don't know when you're going to be able to reconstruct it into something. So I think it's quite scary I think I was quite lucky because I didn't I went into it not thinking I was going to work in academia so not being concerned about any of these questions of like expedience or kind of proliferation of publications or whatever I just went into it thinking this is my time to think deeply but that that's not the way the system is set up it's not the way PhDs are set up and my my supervisor had to defend me quite assertively to the University of Sydney who were very upset that I wasn't finishing my PhD on time, even though they weren't paying me anymore, my scholarship had finished. But they just, you know, had this sense that you should finish. And he kept saying to them, 
it's good what she's doing. I think it's going to be a book, you know, just kind of back off. It's just another three months. Can you back off? Um, and I was lucky to have that have someone advocating for me. I think that's what we need. What we what we need in all systems, but what we need in academia as well. And I think it is something that we do well in the School of Justice. Is that advocating for people to have space to do things of yeah. more meaning, yeah, rather than things that just tick a box, yeah. And advocating for people to have space to deal with whatever circumstances in life that they have to yeah. deal with. I think we're okay at that. Yeah, I agree. I've only been here a few months, but I, I would very much agree with that. That's been my experience. And even just being pragmatic about teaching, making sure that you're teaching well and you're delivering to students what they deserve, but not doing stuff that is unnecessary and doesn't serve anyone, just takes away from your research time. Yeah, I think that is a really refreshing. I don't know how long that's going to last, but it's a really <laughs> refreshing approach that just seems to be meet a pragmatic meeting in the middle of yeah. needs. And this is what I think. Like when I think about universities' relationship with federal government, I think you actually want us to be your think tank. You want us to be doing work that is deep and critical and thoughtful and engaged. That's what you're paying us. Mm-hmm. to do not just and to create professionals that can function in that space not just churn out students to tick yeah. a box and it's deeply problematic and I think we rip students off when we just yeah. churn out students that just tick a box yeah which philosophically is very grand but practically <laughs> it's tricky but you know when you're teaching in a way that is kind of just going through the motions or in a way that is thoughtful mm. and intentional. I know the difference, like you, you can feel it yourself mm. and the students know the difference, I think, you know, the, more than anyone they know the difference <laughs> when you really believe in what you're teaching and the way that you've done the teaching or, or whether you're just getting through the slides. Which is part of the, I think, things to reflect on is figuring out how to be your best self in systems that maybe you're not geared for that yeah I think that's a challenge that we all continue to yeah face and there's not easy answers to any of that definitely in an ongoing way so (laughs) let me ask you do you have a favorite theorist or theory or piece of work that resonates with you Yes, actually, there's a, a scholar who's based in the US called Anne Laura Stoller, and she writes on. She has a book called Imperial Durabilities, and she kind of she writes. She's basically like a post-colonial scholar, like writing about post-colonial critique, but she just does it in this fantastic way that's been so amazing. So she talks about how we write in these historically truncated optics, where we just like write as if something doesn't have a history or it doesn't have a context and how we just literally kind of don't see. And she just she talks about how imperial legacies can show up in spaces that we don't expect and in contestations and in in subjectivities and in like behaviors and moments that we might think oh that's weird what are they doing but actually it's a it's a kind of a post-colonial it's a legacy of imperialism of out of colonial control and of sub- subjectivity and of lack of dignity and and I really love that. I really love this kind of idea of thinking of the spaces where kind of imperial legacies sit that we don't acknowledge. And yeah, how does that translate into maybe the day-to-day experience or concept of your average 
life? Uh, well, I think it's just taught me not to take things for granted or to think of things as inevitable. Yeah. So I think if you if you are a kind of post-colonial scholar or you have that kind of critical lens, you always th- see things as structured. So, you know, privilege or um, authority and so on, it's not natural. Someone didn't kind of just happen upon their privilege. That's like a construction. Mm. And so just being aware of it doesn't mean that we have to kind of act on it or try and dismantle it every day. But just being aware of it, I think, is how we humble power. Mm. That's how we... And we don't think of ourselves more highly than we should, you know, how we are collegial, what's how we kind of reach out to others how we become how we kind of offer something to someone without expecting anything in return is because we know that none of this is really it's not about at the end of the day how awesome I am and how bad somebody how, how hopeless somebody else is in another part of the world so yeah I think that that's how I that's how I carry it anyway um, love that top tips for students for getting through <laughs> an undergrad degree Talk to your lecturer or your teacher more. I was one of those students who wasn't a bad student, but I just had this real sense of inferiority and I just was really scared to ever approach any of my teachers to ask for feedback or to anything, just to develop a relationship. I just didn't think that that was an option and I such a missed opportunity. And I think as an undergraduate student, seeing your teachers as people who have invested and are invested in you and want to help is a completely kind of different frame of reference from seeing them as some authority that is distant and aloof and whatever. That might be the case in other parts of the world, but it's not the case here and Mm. we should take advantage of it more, I think. And the other thing is not to be perfectionist. I'm really terrible at that. I'm I'm really this is like advice for Adele. But you know, just get things done. You'll be surprised in the getting of it done how you can make it better. I don't know, that doesn't make any sense. But you know when you're writing an essay and you don't start because you think this has got to be perfect and you should just start because then, you know, once you've got something, you edit it and you edit it again, you edit it again, it will be really a cracker of an essay. But if you never start and you do it the night before, like I used to do because I was paralysed with this kind of sense of having to make it so good, it ended up being crap. So, Like is that actually the process going into, I'm not a perfectionist, is it actually the process going in that this has to be perfect? Is that what is actually going through your head, or is there something? Not that I don't. I'm not. I'm not a true perfectionist. Like I'm not completely demobilized by it, but I, I do expect too much of myself sometimes. Mm. So I think often not perfect. Perfect is like without mistake and without. But it has to be like, you know, the person has to market has to pick her up and go. Wow, this is amazing. No, they don't. Like, and that's not a really good way to write the essay because probably if you're trying to write that essay, it's not going to be amazing. If you just try and kind of write a coherent piece, you might be able to work on it so it gets to be pretty amazing. But if you start from that point of putting expectations on yourself that this should be amazing, in my experience, it won't turn out so good. <laughs> For me, I think the, the key in that is that that is skipped is the perfection Perfection or excellent which requires work. It requires yeah. working and reworking and practicing yeah. and figuring out different ways. And yeah. It requires work and this expectation that it will be excellent the first the time. The first around time around, yeah. It's deeply problematic and terribly unrealistic and totally setting yourself up to fail. Yeah, and it's not how 
you know, even like you probably do it too, you read a really fantastic article or something or a book chapter and you go, wow. And you sort of tell yourself that they wrote that just like from woe to go like that. Yeah, that's not how it works. works. (laughs) So nothing is written like that. So you need to write a draft and then you need to sit on it for a day. Then you need to reread it and work with it. Just write something. Just write something and then work with that. And the first thing you write will not be wonderful Mm. or amazing. And it never is for anybody. You can totally edit words on a page, but you can't edit a blank page. That's Yeah, that's right. That's right. Adele, it has been absolutely magnificent chatting to you. I'm so grateful we had this opportunity, and I'm very excited to hang out with you more at the School of Justice. Yes, me too. This podcast was hosted and produced by the excellent Dr. Jodie Deeth. Editing by Kelsey Adams. That's me. Music by Poddington Bear, and this podcast was developed with support from the Queensland University of Technology. Thank you for listening.